We're taking a look at the call of the disciples tonight. So turn to Mark chapter 1. And I'm going to start it back at verse 14 to give us our running start. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. So here we have sort of the beginning of Jesus's actual ministry. It begins with the arrest of John. And so Jesus kind of comes and picks up the mantle, so to speak. He picks up the the ministry in a sense that John was doing with the exception that Jesus isn't baptizing. But he's making a very similar proclamation. Instead of the time is near, he says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. I mean, i.e. it's here. Repent and believe in the good news. Repent and believe in the euagelio. The good news, the gospel. Verse 16, as Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the call of the first disciples, of Simon and of Andrew of James and John Zebedee, the calling of the core of, of the disciples is what we have here, depicted in Mark. Now, let's go to Matthew, the parallel in Matthew, and see how it's handled there. So turn to Matthew chapter 4. beginning at verse 12. We're first going to notice something rather interesting in that Matthew, shock of shocks, or it shouldn't be a surprise, is more expansive. It begins the same. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, this is Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee, he left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum uh, by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, quote, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali on the road by the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and the shadow of death, light has dawned. So here we have an example yet again of Matthew taking an event in the life of Jesus and using it to show that Jesus fulfills some Old Testament prophecy, particularly about the coming of God's Messiah or the coming of the proclaimer of God's light and wisdom 
And here we have an example of that. He takes this prophecy from Isaiah and he indicates that this is being fulfilled by Jesus leaving his home of Nazareth and going to Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So it's it's an interesting method whereby Matthew is using Jesus yet again to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Matthew was writing to Jewish Christians and to Jews, attempting to support Jewish Christians and to convince Jews to become Christian. And he is saying, look, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. He's done it repeatedly throughout his gospel already. In the earlier chapters with regards to the nativity of Jesus, the coming of Christ, the how he was proclaimed, all of the material with the, the three wise guys coming and the escape into Egypt. It always continually says this was done in order to fulfill that which was spoken by the prophet. And this is something that we will see again and again and again. That Jesus is identified as such. As the one who fulfills what the prophet has proclaimed will happen. And some event will be taken. Some action will be taken. Some word will be taken. And, and used to indicate it, the fulfillment of this prophecy. And it's Matthew's way of interpreting and supporting in a Jewish Christian and Jewish culture Jesus as the Messiah, which is extremely important. If you're trying to convince Jews to stop beating up on you and become a part of you, and if you're trying to support the, the faith of Jewish Christians, that Jesus is the Messiah, contrary to what the other Jews, their, many of their family members possibly, are saying about him. It's important to pull from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Bible, in order to substantiate this. This is a citation of the Hebrew Bible. However, it, it comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is known as the Septuagint. The Greek translation was readily available uh, why, if you're writing a gospel in Greek or any work in Greek, why retranslate something from the Hebrew when you have a Greek translation at hand? You might as well use it. And the gospel authors and Paul repeatedly quote from the Hebrew Bible, but they quote from the Greek translation of it that was common in their day and throughout the subsequent centuries. Uh, it's called the Septuagint and was pretty common at the time and was actually the Bible of the church for the first couple of centuries. Even after the canonization process of the New Testament books began, they continually turned back to the, to, the, to the Septuagint, to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, for their prophecies about Jesus, Why? for their scriptures. Huh? Why? Because they did not have... A canonized New Testament, yeah. I mean, why did they use the Hebrew versus the Greek? Because Christianity quickly moved from being a Jewish denomination, a denomination of Judaism, to being a Gentile religion standing on its own. And it was especially grouped strongly amongst Greek-speaking Gentiles in the eastern half of the Roman Empire, as well as intellectuals in the western half of the Roman Empire who spoke Greek who read Greek, and therefore, the, since Jesus was a Jew, the Hebrew scriptures that are available to them are those that are written in Greek. Uh, that's just a simple fact. It, Christianity grew the fastest amongst Jews who were Hellenized, 
who were part of the Greco-Roman world, who lived outside of Palestine, who lived in Asia Minor, who lived in Greece, who lived in Rome. Christianity first grew most quickly amongst Hellenized Jews and Gentiles. I'm sorry, what are Hellenized? Hellenization is the process whereby people are Greekified. Greekified Jews, you might say. It's where they learn the Greek language, the Greek cultural practices. Uh, Hellenistic concepts are all those concepts that have to do with Greek culture, with Greek language. Okay, so the Jewish people were learning Greek. Well, the eastern half of the Roman Empire had originally been a Greek empire under Alexander the Great. And he spread Greek culture, Hellenistic culture, throughout the eastern half of what became the Roman Empire, including Egypt and including Palestine and even further to the east into Babylon and Assyria. And that culture was very important. It was, if you were anybody of intelligence and learning, you would know and speak and read and write Greek, at least somewhat. You would have your regional languages, like Aramaic in some regions and various forms of Egyptian in Egypt, but Greek was the language of the intelligentsia. Mm. And when the Roman Empire took over the Greek Empire, the Greco portion, when it split apart and became weaker, as that happened, Rome adopted many Greek practices into their own and, and, and took over essentially the eastern half of the empire and left it Greek. Hence the empire operated in two functional languages, Greek in the east, Latin in the west. And Hellenism is Greekism, you might say. Hellas. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Precisely. So, so the, the Jews that lived outside of Palestine probably had numerous generations oh, yes. of being Hellenized. Oh, for example, uh, Saul of Tarsus, whom we know as Paul, grew up in Tarsus, which is in Asia Minor. It is a Greek, originally a Greek city, then became a Roman city, and all the people of Tarsus received Roman citizenship at a certain point in the Roman Civil War. And so everybody who was born after that, and up to that point, and after that was automatically a Roman citizen regardless of their ancestry. And there was a strong Jewish enclave uh, uh, occupation there. Jews who had left Judea for multiple reasons, some political, mostly economic, to go and to trade and to work outside of Palestine. And wherever they moved to, while they may have maintained their Hebrew roots, they also um, merged into the societies around them and accommodated themselves. So that while they might practice Sabbath day keeping and special feasts and fasts and dietary regulations for certain special holidays, they wouldn't necessarily keep the dietary regulations all the time. Which is why the Palestinian Jews looked at these Greekified Hellenistic Jews, rat, you know, they looked down their nose at them. They, they were not good. They, they had accommodated themselves to the cultures in which they lived, and that was considered a bad thing. And the bad, the really bad thing was because that culture, that Hellenistic culture, had come into Palestine, and then when the Romans moved in and were occupying really strongly, many of the, 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 
the military cohorts that were there were Greek-speaking cohorts. And, and as a result, uh, they were instilling into the local government and the local people and the local intelligentsia and the leaders of the Sanhedrin, for instance, all of these Greek practices. So while they still practiced dietary regulations almost all the time in Palestine, nevertheless, they would be tempted to speak Greek and engage in other Greek cultural practices, particularly with regards to entertainment. So uh, Hellenization it moved into Palestine as well and caused great problems. And many of the anti-Greek, anti-Roman political religious movements uh, like Essenism, like what? Essenism and Zealotism. Judaism had multiple denominations within it. There were the Pharisees, there were the Sadducees, there were the Zealots, there were the Essenes. And the Essenes were really critical of the, of the Sadduceic leadership in Jerusalem. They had accommodated themselves too much to the occupation of the Romans and the Hellenization that was going on at the time. They were listening to Greek music and they were, they were speaking Greek in their homes there and, and the Essenes were just being highly critical of that and therefore they would separate themselves out and they went out into the desert and lived at Qumran and other places. Um, uh, and, and practiced a pure Judaism that had nothing to do with anything Greek. Mm-hmm. And um, that was a serious problem at the time of Jesus. The criticism of the leadership often had to do, and the, and the expectation for a Messiah, often had to do with these cultural dislikes of Hellenistic influences. And, and that's kind of a fascinating problem because Christianity, as it grew up, it grew and expanded amongst Hellenistic Jews, especially. Interestingly enough, Matthew's gospel tends to be the one that, ex- that was most favored amongst those who were not Hellenized. Yet it was written in Greek and quotes the Greek Hebrew Bible, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. So you see there's this transition phase that was going on where even those who had been Jewish Christians and true to Jewish practices, nevertheless, due to the fact that they've been expelled from their homeland, they're now having to accommodate themselves to the surrounding cultures. And that's exactly what they did. So the most Jewish of the Gospels, written in Greek and quotes from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. I think that's fascinating. Paul, Saul of Tarsus, started out as a Hellenistic Jew, rejected the Hellenization, moved to Jerusalem, studied under Gamaliel, a very strong, intelligent, influential Jewish philosopher and teacher and rabbi of the time, and became a strong, full Palestinian Jew, speaking only Hebrew and Aramaic, and while he spoke Greek, he just refused to do it. He became, he, he in other words, converted from Hellenism to full-fledged Phariseeism. And, um, but that background of his in Hellenism became very important for him later when he, when he was called to be a Christian and to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He spoke Greek as his native mother tongue. So he could go, and he understood their ways of thinking. He knew their philosophers so that he could argue with the various philosophical groups when he gets to Athens, knowledgeably, and was not considered 
um, a doofus because of his background. He was highly educated, both in Hebrew thought and in Gentile thought. So he was actually the perfect Jew to take Christianity to complete Gentiles in that sense. Um, but what we have here in, in Matthew, and that's a full sidebar, uh, what we have here in Matthew is Matthew quoting from the Hebrew Bible, but it's the translation into Greek of the Hebrew Bible. Hence, if you were to go and look this passage up in your Old Testament today, which is translated directly from Hebrew into English, you would notice there are some interesting differences between the Hebrew translation into English and this English translation, which comes from Hebrew to Greek to English. That Greek translation from Hebrew into Greek contains some interpretations and adjustments to the thought processes, which then get reflected yet again in English. So most of the differences in the Old Testament citations in the New Testament with your Old Testament readings is due to that layer of translation. It's one step further removed. But that's what we have here. We have a Hebrew Bible passage that has been translated into Greek and is found here in the New Testament. From that time, verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come. So what, is, what has Matthew done? He has inserted this response, this, this fulfillment of the... Uh, of, a, of an Old Testament prophecy and what Jesus has done here into this passage from Mark's gospel, Mark 14 and 15, by taking Mark's passage in 14 and 15 of chapter 1 and spreading it apart and inserting that Jesus has gone down and made his home in Capernaum by the sea and that therefore fulfills this Old Testament prophecy. We will see this kind of thing repeatedly. We won't spend a lot of attention on it later, but this is an example of what Matthew will do frequently with Mark. Because Mark doesn't do this, not much. Uh, Luke doesn't do it, because Luke is writing to Greek people. Um, it, it, but Matthew does it because he's writing to Jews and Jewish Christians. So that's what he's done at the very beginning of verses 14 and 15 from Mark chapter 1. That's what he's done here in Matthew uh, 4, 12 through 17. He split the two verses apart essentially and inserted all of this extra material that helps it to speak to Jews and to Jewish Christians. Let's keep... Uh, let's how, keep. How about the, the proclamation? What's the source of that? that the repent. Common? The repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Yeah, the... Um, uh, if you look in, in Mark, it says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, that's what it reads in Mark. The kingdom of God would make more sense to. And, well, it, it makes sense to Jews, but it, it makes in some ways more sense to Gentiles. The kingdom of God, God's kingdom is going to come here on earth. In fact, it's already here in a sense. Matthew, writing to Hebrews, to, to Jewish and people and Jewish Christians of the diaspora out of Jerusalem after 70 AD, adjusts the reading for Jewish ears and Jewish expectations, more so. Repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven is a code word amongst messianic expecting Jews of the establishment of the messianic kingdom. The kingdom of heaven on earth is, is what is implied. And that kingdom of heaven is a code word that was present among Essene writings in the Qumran community and zealots, all of whom were expecting, and Pharisees, all of whom were expecting the Messiah to come and to establish the kingdom of heaven. And that was a code word for the messianic kingdom. It's the same thing as the kingdom of God. It's the use of the terminology, which is a little different. But he's pulling it from Mark. He's pulling that from Mark. Okay, picking up again in Matthew, um, we've read the call in, in Mark 16 through 20. Now let's pick it up in Matthew and see how Matthew handles the same basic thing. Uh, verse 18 of chapter 4 of Matthew. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is almost, not quite, but it's really close to being word for word from Mark. There's just some very slight adjustments. Very slight adjustments. Let's look at one of them. In Mark, verse 16, it says, He saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea. In Matthew, in verse 18, it says, He saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. Matthew has added the appellation who is called Peter. Uh, who is called Peter. Uh, in, in Greek, Petros, meaning rock or stone or pebble. This is bigger than a pebble. Rock or stone. Not necessarily boulder. It's smaller than a boulder. Rock or stone. In Aramaic, that would have been the name Kepha or Kephas, depending on the formation. Paul, in the letter to the Galatians, calls him Kephas. So that's interesting. Paul, writing to the Galatians in the 50s, makes references to Simon Peter, calls him Peter in some places, but elsewhere calls him Kephas. Which is interesting. His actual name that Jesus gave him. His given name is Simon. Jesus gives him the name later in the story, Kepha. Mark doesn't contain that appellation. Matthew does. And some see this as a very strong indicator that... Mark is reflecting that closer to Peter source. Peter probably wouldn't call himself Peter. 
Jesus called him Peter. Others called him Peter. He probably called himself Simon, not Kepha, not Peter, Petros, but by his given name. And that's what we see in Mark. We see him called by his given name, Simon. Matthew adds, who is called Peter. If Mark is closer to, to both, both in time, but that's a little less important, in terms of distance from source, and Peter is the source for all of this, it would make sense that he doesn't call himself Kepha. He doesn't call himself Petros. It would make sense that he would make reference to himself as Simon. And that the person who is writing this down most proximately to the person he gets it from after that person dies, he would simply reference him as Simon. What his name was Simon, but he was called Peter. I mean, Jesus gives him that name later when he says, you are, the, uh, you are rocky, and upon you I will build the church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus, That's just, Jesus, Jesus gives him the name of Peter? Jesus gives him the name of Peter. Oh, because it said here, I thought that, uh, yeah, Simon called Peter. And right. Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee. He hasn't done it yet. The story, the narrator and the and the hearer of the story already know oh, okay. about Peter. They know it from other sources. So Peter from, means rock. Peter is is the English translate transliteration of the Greek word Petros, okay. which is rock. Oh, okay. And Petros is the Greek translation of the Aramaic word Kephas which means rock. So what the name that Jesus would have given him would have been Cephas. That's the name that Paul references him to at times, calls him Cephas at times. Um, and, and, and I think that's just fact. Even in Greek, he calls him Cephas. He transliterates the Cephas across into Greek. But otherwise, he references him as Peter, Petros in Greek. That's interesting. Uh, he also references him once as Simon. Uh, but in talking to him, in talking about him, he either says Cephas or he will reference him as Petros, Peter. Um, Is the renaming part of Mark? I see later on he uses Peter. It's in Mac. Yeah, it, later on he uses Peter, but at this point he doesn't. And yes, it is in Mark. It does occur in Mark. renaming occurs in Mark, too. I believe it does. It's just not detailed. He just says, you are, Mark. You are Peter. He doesn't give all the, the details, but he does give the naming. Uh, but at this point in time, it's interesting that Mark doesn't include that, that appellation, but Matthew does. Math, Matthew and the audience know about it. They know who this person is. He's going to be named Peter. And therefore, and since that's probably how that they better knew him, that by the name Jesus gave him, than by his given name. I mean, think about it. Most people today don't know him as Simon. They know him as Peter. They may have heard Simon Peter from reading it in Scripture, but they they don't really know him by his given name of Simon. So uh, uh they know him by the name that he was given by Jesus, Peter. So that's um, 
that's an interesting little piece, a little indicator within Matthew. Matthew is writing to people who know who this person is. They have heard about him from other sources. There may be some people who knew him still hanging around, older folk. Yeah. Did you say Matthew wrote this about 70 AD? Mm-hmm. Roughly, 75 so to when, 80. When did Mark? Mark was written before the destruction of the Second Temple in 70. Uh, probably after the death of Peter in 64, which would place it about 65, 66, somewhere in there. Uh, Some scholars would place it right at 70, but almost no scholars put it after 70. Uh, I think the, the strength of the argument that Mark shows no indication of the destruction of the Second Temple at all, even a hint of it, it's not there, where you find it in Matthew and Luke, you find the authors there know the temple no longer exists. Do these people know Jesus? Who? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke did not. Mark, if you accept that Mark is the fellow named John Mark who is depicted in the story, um, then he knew Jesus, but he was a boy when he knew him. Jesus, when, when Jesus died, he was about 12. Mark was about 12. Um, Matthew, as we have talked about earlier in the study, Matthew, the gospel that bears the name Matthew, wasn't written by the disciple Matthew. It was written by probably a disciple of Matthew or somebody like that. Um, And therefore, in that sense, carries the weight of Matthew and may incorporate some writings from Matthew. But Matthew was the oldest of the disciples he probably was dead by 60. So he wouldn't have been around by 75 or 80 to write his go- to write this gospel. But someone who knew him may have been around. There were people who remembered the life of Jesus who were still hanging around as late as 65. And if you accept the traditions about John, and those are pretty strong traditions, that the apostle John lived until he was in his 90s. At, and until the, the, the uh, persecution under the emperor Domitian, uh, that would mean that somebody, John, uh, survived into the 90s AD who remembered and was a disciple of Jesus, and he would have been the last one. There would have been a group of other folk who would have known Jesus, people like Mary Magdalene and several others who would have known and remembered Lazarus, who would have known and remembered Jesus, who were not part of the inner twelve, but they would have known and remembered him. And by the time this gospel was written in 75, only the only people, the majority of the people who would still remember Jesus would have been those who saw and heard him maybe when they were kids. And only a very few who could have remembered him, uh, This, based on how long people lived back then, only a very few lived into their 80s and 90s. Right. It was very rare. Right. It was very rare to live beyond 60. And so the numbers, it's, it's amazing that any of the disciples lived as long as they did. Peter should not have lived until he was in his 60s, but he did. There's really no doubt about that. And Paul shouldn't have lived, Paul was a contemporaneous of Jesus too, although he didn't know him in his life. Um, he may have seen him at a distance or something, but he wasn't a follower and he didn't, doesn't seem to have any indication that he ever met Jesus. He never says he did in, in, in life only in, in the resurrection. 
Um, uh, Paul, uh, who was born, you know, either early in the in the first century or at the very end of the preceding era, uh, he lived until he was in his sixties. So that and these people lived very hard lives, and they traveled great distances, much of it on foot, and they 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 encountered lots of opposition from various groups, and yet they lived a very 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 long time. So and almost up to the point where these gospels were written. All right. So if Mark is writing his gospel based on the teachings and preachings of Peter, then it kind of fits with what we just read in Mark. No mention at this point of the appellation Peter. Uh, but Matthew, at this point, adds it in because that it would be how he would Peter would have been remembered and known by this point in time. And this is well after Peter's death. Another interesting adjustment, uh, and I'm not sure why it's there, is while Zebedee is mentioned, uh, and actually in the boat with them, it says immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. But in, in Mark's gospel, it says with the hired men, left him with the hired men. Why would Matthew leave out the hired men phrase? Maybe he didn't consider it important, but he includes other things that seem sort of innocuous. It may be that the idea that James and John Zebedee came from a family where they could afford hired men to help out in the, in the industry, i.e. their family job efficient, might have been something of a scandal. I mean, we wouldn't call them wealthy. But if they, could, if they could hire people to help in the family job, in the family work, that means they're doing rather well in that culture. Peter and Andrew seem to be doing the job by themselves. Zebedee is wealthy enough that he can hire people to help him and his sons do the job. And for a people who have been expelled from their homeland, they're refugees living elsewhere, they probably have a problem with terms of finances. It might have been a little bit of a scandal that James and John Zebedee came from what they considered a well-to-do family. It does kind of fit, though, and this is another interesting indicator from Mark. Later on, James and John Zebedee are sort of the arrogant ones who think that they ought to get the chief seats in the kingdom. They get to arguing after the Last Supper as to who's going to be important in the kingdom of God, according to Luke's gospel. And Mark indicates that they seem to have come from a family that had enough money to hire people to help out in the job. So they might have had something of a pampered life and expected better because of that. And that is an in, it's interesting that that does seem to cohere then with what we see here in Mark, where it says that they had a, they had a hired man to help out. Howard hired men to help out in their work. Whereas there's no indication that Andrew and Simon had anybody to help them. At least not in Mark. And Matthew leaves it out. I just looked to see. Yeah. He's writing for his audience. Mm -hmm. There you go. His, uh, and, and when you get to this point between Matthew and uh, Matthew writing to a Jewish audience, that could be a problem given that context. Now, let's look at Luke, because Luke is going to be very different here. Luke is going to be very, very different.
Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 14. We're beginning at the same place that Mark and Matthew begin, immediately following the temptations in the wilderness. This picks up. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread throughout through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. Hmm. So he's come in from the wilderness. He's coming from the wilderness, from the temptations, and he begins his ministry. We don't get to hear his proclamation of the beginning of his ministry yet. We don't hear that yet. Luke is doing what Luke frequently does. He's expanding on the story that he's gotten from Mark extensively. And this is some of the most extensive expansion that Luke does on the story from Mark. Verse 16. When he came to Nazareth, remember that's his hometown, where he had been brought up. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, he stood to read. This would not have been uncommon. In that culture, an adult male, any adult male who had standing, i.e., uh, was known in the synagogue, that particular synagogue, could easily just stand up and have the scroll brought to him and read during the service. That's part of what you get to do after you've passed maturity in your hometown. He, you don't have to be a special rabbi to do that, in other words. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. And recovery of sight to the blind, and to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Here we have Jesus. In the story, he is reading from the scroll of the synagogue, of the Isaiah scroll of the synagogue, which would have been. In Hebrew, it would have been the Hebrew scroll. But Luke, in quoting, is quoting the Septuagint. He's not quoting the Hebrew. He's not writing it in Hebrew. He's writing in Greek. So he's simply taking the story and taking the material that Jesus is reading and pulling it from the Greek Septuagint instead of from the Hebrew scroll. Some people get it wrong here and say, well, this must be, therefore, how the Hebrew scrolls read in those days. No, they read a little differently, not greatly differently, but there's a, a line missing here and there. And if you want to see the differences, you can go and look at it in your Old Testament, Isaiah. Uh, we won't do that at this point. We might do it later when we're examining some of those differences in greater detail. But um, that's what he's doing here. He's, he's taking, just as Matthew did, the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, inserting what it was Jesus read into it here. Is this Isaiah? This is a reading from Isaiah. Different one. 61, 1 and 2. Let's go ahead and do it now. Let's, I'll, 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 I'll turn to Isaiah. This is found in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. 
and reads as follows. The spirit of the Lord God, Adonai Elohim in Hebrew, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now it keeps going and going and going. Jesus stops in mid-sentence in his reading. So, looking at it again, and this is Isaiah speaking. Of this himself. is this is Isaiah making a proclamation here. Uh, it's one of the servant songs in Isaiah. God sends his prophet to bring encouragement to the exiled and depressed. He will make them mighty oaks. So this is a servant song. And remember, the Hebrew people up until the time of Jesus viewed them, and still today, view themselves, the Jews viewed themselves and the, as a whole people as being the suffering servant. And here we find, placed into Jesus' lips here, we find this interpretation. He's taking this passage and he's getting ready to apply it to right then and there. So let's look at it again. I'm going to read it from the, the uh, Luke rendition in verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. The Spirit of the Lord God, I'm reading now from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed hmm. to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and release to prisoners let me pick it up again in Luke um, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind hmm okay he has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and release to the prisoners, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor is actually there in the beginning of Isaiah 61 verse 2. So you can see the difference, therefore, in the what we get for the Greek Septuagint, we can see a difference between that which we find in 18 and 19 and that which we find in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, which comes straight from the Hebrew into English. See, mine's pretty similar. Are they saying that uh, when Jesus read that he read from this? It says in Luke 4... In this, in chapter four, that Jesus was given a scroll of the Hebrew prophet Isaiah, that would have been a Hebrew language scroll, much like the Hebrew scrolls of uh, that we have found in the um, the Qumran collection. 
the Qumran scroll collection. There's an Isaiah scroll there that would have been very similar to the kind that the one that Jesus would have read from. The reading should have been like that. Now, you said your reading is very similar. What translation do you use there? New International Version. Okay, using the New International Version. Read your Isaiah 61, 1 and the first part of verse 2. You're reading from Isaiah. Right. Okay. Um, it says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because of the Lord has been anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim the freedom of the captives and to release the release from the darkness for, for the prisoners. So that so the NIV renders it more closely and then to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Right. So the NIV renders the passage more closely to the Greek Septuagint rendering that we find in Luke. By the way, the rendering, if you go over and read it in Greek and compare it to the Greek Septuagint, it's almost identical. The, the, the author of Luke's Gospel, Luke, has literally copied it word for word from the Septuagint. He must have had a copy in front of him. Well, the NRSV renders it a little differently than the NIV does. The NRSV bases its translation of Isaiah upon the oldest copies of the Hebrew Bible that we have in Hebrew. The NIV is supposed to do that too, but they do sometimes like to adjust those passages that are quoted in the New Testament to make them rendered more like you find them in the New Testament, hence the Greek Septuagint's impacting it. It's one of the reasons, one of several reasons, why I prefer the NRSV or the NASB over the NIV. NIV is a good translation, but every once in a while the translators will, will prefer to try to harmonize an Old Testament passage that's being quoted in the New Testament, harmonize it to get rid of some of the problems. There are a few little issues that have remained They've been true enough to the Hebrew renderings that it's not identical, unlike some translations. But the NRSV is closer to the Hebrew rendering, yes? See, see silly me, I just figured these versions like this, they, they took them from the King James Version. No. Instead of translating them from the ancient languages. No. The King James was translated from... Uh, I'm curious to hear your Isaiah rendering in just a second from the King James. It's rendered, the New Testament is rendered from Greek. The Old Testament is rendered in part from Hebrew. But a Hebrew that has been somewhat affected by Greek, because it's much later copies. But it also is heavily impacted by the Greek Septuagint. So read your Isaiah 61 verse 1. Okay. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Mm -hmm. Wow. They did a good job in that case. The, one of the issues is that the, the, 
as I said, the King James will sometimes err by allowing the Greek Septuagint to help them interpret how to translate the Hebrew Bible. But apparently they didn't need to here. So they did a good job. It's, it's a little different than my NRSD, but not much. After that, did you go through verse 2? You know, she, she, skipped, she skipped the first part of verse 2. I only asked her to read verse 1. The only part that's found in the Luke rendering is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Is that how it reads it in the King James? Uh, this says to pro proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Right. And so well, it, the, the, the passage in Luke chops off at yeah. to, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he quits. Right. He stops reading at that point. And, and that is... Now, also something that would not be uncommon, by the way, to take a passage and not read all of it. To take a passage and only read part of it would not be uncommon. Um, so for him to cut off that, at that point is not a surprise. It's really not a surprise. So the King James actually rendered that very well. I'm very pleased to see that. They did a good job on that. Um, and if you compare that with what, the, what Luke says... It's different. There is an interesting line in Luke's that's different. Uh, and recovery of sight to the blind, which is found in the Septuagint. It's not found in Hebrew. That's interesting. But it, that's just interesting to note that the author is drawing this, pulling it, copying it from the Greek translation in here, even though Jesus is supposed to be reading it from Hebrew. Luke is not stupid enough to think he needs to retranslate it. Does, does Luke do a lot with healing the blind? Well, there is healing of blind people in Luke's gospel. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's keep going. And, verse 20, And Jesus, he, rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, and, and just that today people preach standing, except unless you're the Pope, then you get to sit, preach sitting. Jesus and Jews in his day, you would stand to read the passage, but then you would sit to proclaim its meaning. That is common. It shows the respect of, for the scripture Whereas your interpretation may not necessarily be worthy of standing for. All right, that's, that's the point. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's taking this passage from Isaiah and applying it to him, to himself, and to his ministry. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said, They knew him. They knew who he was. It's, it's not as if he was a stranger. And they're surprised to this extent. This is, this is Joseph's son, yet he has great understanding. He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, Do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. Huh. When he came back, remember back up here in verse 
uh, 14, uh, it says, and then in, in 15, it says that he came back into the territory and a report about him spread, spread through all the surrounding country. So apparently he came, and if he came from the wilderness in the west, he would have come through Capernaum to get to Nazareth. So that does kind of make sense. But it also may be a hint that this has been placed out of sequence, as we will see in a minute. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them. Elijah didn't go to any Jews, except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. Ooh, to a Gentile. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Assyrian. All of these good Jewish lepers, they didn't get they didn't get healed, but Naaman, who's Assyrian, he does get healed. Ooh. You know, this is the story of contraries here. What you don't expect is what you get. What you expect, you don't get. When they had heard when they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up and drove him out of the town and led him to the brow, brow of the hill on which their town was built. By the way, that's really serious. Nazareth is built on a hilltop overlooking the Jezreel Valley. And if you're being run out of town, they're gonna, if they're going to toss you over the side of the hill, that's quite a little fall down into the valley. It's not, that's not minor. So, they, um, uh, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way, which is kind of interesting. He just sort of decided to leave them and they kind of parted out of his way. They couldn't touch him. Almost miraculous, mysterious, unexplained escape. He just left. Interesting. So, so what's the genesis of this whole story? Well, the point is, why did he leave Nazareth? In Matthew it says he left Nazareth to go to Capernaum. It doesn't say why. Mark doesn't explain it at all. Just he's there. Walking by the seaside. Luke seems to want to handle the issue. Why is Jesus has Jesus left Nazareth? Why did he have such a negative reception in his hometown? And here he gives this reason. The message he proclaims is in a sense a message for outsiders. Remember Luke's audience. Luke's audience is Gentiles. Who are the two people here who get healed that he mentions? Well, the, the person who gets the special grace of having Elijah stay with her? A Sidonian. Someone who lives in Tyre and Sidon. A Phoenician. Not a Jew. And who gets healed of his leprosy? 
Not a Jew, a Gentile, a Syrian, Naaman. He draws these two stories from the Hebrew Bible, from the Old Testament, from their scriptures. And just citing them as he does, ticks them off. What he is saying here is, this message, you're going to hear it, and many of you are going to reject it. This is a message that's going to Gentiles, too. They're so going this, to this story this precedes the calling of the apostles? Yes! This story precedes the calling of the apostles. He's in Nazareth. The apostles lives in, the first apostles live in Capernaum, along the Sea of Galilee. Let's hit the. He went to verse uh, chapter they four. They say four. here, but they refer to something happening. In they do seem. He seems to want that there is a knowledge of something happening in Capernaum, but it hasn't happened yet. So either this story is out of sequence, as it might be. Luke may have put it here out of sequence for a reason. Or he has been through Capernaum preaching and teaching and whatnot, and they've heard about it. As it says at the very beginning, uh, a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. And he began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. But it seems to me more likely that Luke has taken it out of its context of where it should be in the story and placed it here for a specific reason. To launch Jesus' ministry in his hometown to show, to reflect the fact that just as Jesus was rejected by his hometown, so also his people, the Jews, would reject him. And he's writing to this to mostly Gentile audiences that would be appealing to them. So it reflects again the audience to which Luke is writing. He's pulling these stories, these accounts, and applying them in ways that would appeal to them. Verse 31 of Luke chapter 4. He went down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astounded at his teaching because he spoke with authority. In the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, which I find kind of silly. Is there any other kind of demon than an unclean one? I mean, <laughs> sort of redundant, but anyway. And he, the demon, cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. When the demon had thrown him down before them, he came out of him without having done him any harm. They were all amazed and kept saying to one another, What kind of utterance is this? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and, they, and out they come. And a report about him began to reach every place in the region. So that's sort of interesting. Verse 37 echoes verse 14, part B, where it says, and a report about him spread throughout all the surrounding country. So Luke sort of echoes himself about the spreading of the message. Where, where are these places on the map? That's why I brought it in here. On the map here... Here's Jerusalem down here in the south. 
Here's the Dead Sea. Here is the Jordan River. Here is the Sea of Galilee, also known in Greek to the Greek people as Lake Gennesaret. Tiberius is on the shore here, which was a powerful Roman and Greek city. Nazareth, here's the Jezreel Valley. Here's Haifa. Here's Mount Carmel, where Elijah had the altar lighting contest with the priests of Baal. Here is the Jezreel Valley, which runs all the way down to the Jordan River from the ocean, I mean, from the sea, from the Mediterranean Sea. Um, Nazareth is located right here. Right here. Interestingly enough, across the Jezreel Valley, you find Megiddo right here. And, and you can see Megiddo across the valley from Nazareth and vice versa. Just an interesting note. Um, from Nazareth, you travel downhill into this kind of a bowl in which the Sea of Galilee sits, below sea level. And Capernaum is located right here on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, of Lake Gennesaret, to the west of the Jordan feeder into the lake. So it sits here on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. So Nazareth is, is uh, here, and Capernaum is there. All right. Fairly good distance, isn't it? Uh, let's see if they have a mile thing. Okay. Okay, that's... Okay, this is a mile. This is 20 miles on the map. So, from Nazareth to Capernaum is right at 20 miles. By a straight line, which you wouldn't go by. Uh, but it's about... So, it's about 20 miles. Luke has him kind of zipping back and forth, it sounds like. Well, apparently he's come from the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil, comes in, and comes to Nazareth. That would be the logical route to take. Then, apparently, he's gone back. At least that's how Luke renders it. That, that's how Luke renders it. And how long do you think it would take to walk 20 miles? Or maybe take a cart? Oh, by car? Cart. Oh, cart. And a donkey. Because well, in the old days, they either walked or... Well, first of all, that's a pretty hard climb uphill. It's a pretty steep incline to get from down in Capernaum up have to you, Nazareth. Have you been there? Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, to drive from Capernaum, I mean, from Nazareth to Cana, and then Cana all the way down to Tiberias, which is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee took us about less than 40 minutes yeah, by, car. Uh, by car. Right. Um, and then it's not far from Tiberias up and around to the top of the Sea of Galilee where Capernaum is located. Um, on foot, you're talking a good day's journey. Mm -hmm. You're talking a good day's journey. Going from Nazareth to Capernaum is easier because you're going downhill. But... <laughs> Going the other direction is harder because you're going uphill. Okay. Um, so here he is. 
He is in Capernaum. They're surprised, they're, they're stunned. He has authority in his preaching and his commanding of the unclean spirits. So when they say he's going down, they're talking about him going down. Literally that down into that bowl, essentially, yeah. Verse 38. After leaving the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. That's interesting. We haven't yet met Simon. Not in Luke. He hasn't been introduced at all. Not at all. And we still don't meet Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. And they asked him about her. Then he stood over her and rebuked the fever. And it left her. Immediately she got up and began to serve them. Whoever the them is. Now most interpreters say that them would include Simon. Well, possibly. Possibly. But this is Simon's house. And if you go to Capernaum today, you, you, it's not far from the synagogue. There's Simon's house. Now, how do they know it's Simon's house? Well, um, first of all, there's a great big church built over it. <laughs> um, but the archaeological ruins do date back to the first century. And it starts as a small little stone structure to which lots of wings and halls and chapels and things were added over the years and years and years and years dating to as late as the 5th century and it was known in the 5th century as Peter's house but in the very center in the old holy of holy chapels in the little church that was there that was actually the archaeologists have confirmed exactly the same as the homes that are around it it was a fisherman's home in the town of Capernaum that was glommed onto by lots of extra building structure to make a bigger and bigger and bigger above ground church. And so there is some good solid reason to suspect that if it's not Peter's house, it's the house of a very early Christian living in Capernaum. And Capernaum was destroyed by an earthquake and the subsequent flood of water that washed up from the sea up over the town and went all the way up to where the synagogue was when it destroyed the synagogue is higher up and but it destroyed all of the residential areas along the seashore there and it washed it out and it silted over and was protected for a very long time because of that until archaeologists came along and excavated the site but um, it's a very fascinating place to go and to visit because there's just all sorts of neat stuff to see there um, I may be Pulling the punchline here, but but do I understand that there's no story of fishermen or Zebedee oh, yes, or anything in Luke? Oh yes, it's in Luke. We're getting ready to come to that in just a minute. It starts in chapter five, but there's so much more in Luke. He's expanded this bit here prior to the call. I guess quite a lot. So as the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various kinds of diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on each of them and cured them. Demons also came out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God, but he rebuked them and would not let them speak because they knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, he departed and went to a deserted place, and the crowds were looking for him, and they reached him and wanted to prevent him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God 
to the other cities also. For I was sent for this purpose. And they didn't want him to go. They liked what he said and they liked what he did. So he continued to proclaiming the message in the synagogues of Judea. Now, chapter 5, verse 1. Once, while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee. That's the Greek name for it. Once, while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. In Mark, they're casting, they're still fishing by the seaside. But here, they're done fishing. They've done fishing. And they're washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Interesting, just Simon. He's gone back to Mark here. He's changed it some, but he's now back with Mark. Belonging to Simon, asked him to put out a little way from the shore. And he sat down and talked the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, (laughs) he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Now, all of this extra stuff is not in Mark, but is here in Luke. It's also not in Matthew here. For he and all who were with him were amazed at this catch of the fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. So Mark doesn't say that they are partners. In fact, it seems kind of indicates in Mark that they actually are at a different site, a little further down. Whereas here, they're partners. The Zebedee brothers are partners with Simon and Andrew. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. He's expanded extensively on the Mark account that Matthew quotes almost verbatim. He's he's expanded on it extensively. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. Well, I guess Andrew didn't make the cast. Not not yet. He, He may be there, but he's not named. Interesting. A lot of extra material. Why all this extra stuff? Consider the brevity of Mark's account and Matthew's account. Jesus sees them, sees their fishing, says, come, I'll make you fishers of people. And they immediately follow him, leave their business, leave their source of income, leave their livelihoods, leave their families, and go and follow Jesus immediately. But there doesn't seem to be any reason to. Now, 
in the Jewish society and culture, it was a little more common to, to go on religious uh, outings like this, especially if you were looking for the Messiah to come. This didn't really sit well with Greek audiences, and so it would make kind of sense for Luke to take that story and insert it here in order to give them a reason to follow Jesus. The healing stories, the casting out of the demons, the fish. Of course, Jesus being a fish magnet, you'd think they'd say, here, stay in the boat all the time, Jesus. We're going to go fishing every day and make a lot of money. No, they didn't. And that's what I would have done. I'm gonna <laughs> that's the logical thing to do. Jesus, the fish magnet, come on. But they don't do that. They follow him instead because he tells them, you know, we're going to make you fishers of people. So it's the same story and it's not. Now, interestingly enough, if we go back to Mark, we'll see something very fascinating. The sequence of events has, you find out where Luke got some of his material that he's put earlier in the story. Go to Mark chapter 1, verse 21. They came to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and talked. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have, we, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed and kept on asking one another, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to, to spread throughout the surrounding regions of Galilee. You see what Luke has done. He's taken this account that follows in Mark the calling of the apostles, the disciples of, of, of Simon and of James and John, and has inserted it earlier in the account, essentially to give reasons for these people to follow Jesus. That's my reading on it. He didn't like the sequence that Mark used. It makes more sense to use this account from 21 through 28 to illustrate why Simon and why James and John Zebedee were willing to drop everything and follow Jesus. But he expands on it even more with the fish story, one of many fish stories in the Gospels. So that's what Luke has done. He's taken this account and shifted its location. To prior to the call. Simon's house too. And he's included Simon's house. And Simon's mother-in-law. And the fish story. All of that gets included. But it's not here. Question. Do you think this all really happened? Now Simon. And, uh, not quite finished. So the, the bit about the mother-in-law comes after that. You're right. Verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew. We should have finished the reading. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew and James and John. What? With James and John. 
Now, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So it's kind of Luke adds, and he rebuked it. That part is added by Luke, but it's the same story. And of course, the same things happen as happened in Luke that get moved earlier in the account in Luke and is left here in Mark after the calling. That evening at sundown, they they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door, and he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went to a deserted place, and there he prayed, and Simon and his companions hunted for him. Notice now it's Simon and the companions are hunting for him. Luke had to leave that little phrase out when he's changed the sequence. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is searching for you. He answered, let us be, let us go on to the neighboring towns, so that I may proclaim the message there also. For this is what I came out to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. So, so the sequence in Mark, in a sense, makes more sense than the sequence in Luke in that Jesus has met Peter and James and John and they followed him and essentially they've taken him home. And there at the in 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 Capernaum he then gets famous and does all of these miracles and casts out demons. So the, the, the new material is it's kind of in the fish story. The fish and story. In the, and in the dialogue between Simon and Peter. In the boat. Yeah. You know, that, that's right. It, um, so it, it's, it's fascinating how Luke has shifted the order. Shifted the order. I, I think Mark's account actually follows more logically, although it doesn't give us a reason why... They dropped everything and followed Jesus, which is what I think is governing Luke's resequencing of the story. Jesus has a commanding presence that he says, come on. And And they come. come, That seems to be what it is, unless there's something not included that we don't know about from Mark that that they knew about him before he comes and calls them. But we don't see that in Mark. Mark, he comes and calls them. They they follow him, and then they go down. They go up, up and around to Capernaum, and there, he 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 preaches in the synagogue. He casts out demons. He goes down to Simon Peter's house. Uh, he heals Simon's mother-in-law. The people want him to stay and, and all, and he tries to go away. And it's Simon who follows him and finds him and says they want him. And then it, it, and you can see how Luke has taken that and washed Simon out of that part because that hasn't happened yet as Luke's account renders it. I think Mark's account actually makes more sense of the story, not of why they followed him. But why they followed him is the reason why Luke resequenced it. Now, in answer to your question, do I think this really happened? Something like this happened. Something happened. In that Jesus, it would make you know Jesus 
collected about him some people. They had their reasons for following him. Simon was one of them. Andrew, James, and John were others. There were others beyond them. Um, and he was active in ministry in, at Capernaum. That's probably very, very, very correct. Probably very true. And he um, was active in that region, in Galilee, in that whole region from Nazareth over to, to the uh, Sea of Galilee in his preaching. There seems to be every indication that that is true. And, and that he was well known and admired as not only a speaker but a, a healer with great influence. I think right. that's right. very... I guess what I'm curious about, though, is, for example, the parts that are different, like um, when he um, entered into Simon's house and Simon's uh, wife's mother-in-law. mother-in-law and all that. I wonder where Luke got that information from. Well, that comes from Mark, from later on. Later. Oh, so it is it in fo- Mark? It, it, we just read, read that. It follows oh, later in Mark. Oh, okay. Yeah, it follows... At, see, the whole sequence... What, hap- what Luke did was is he took the sequence from 21 through all the way down through 39 and he inserted it before the story from Mark 1, 16 through 20. He resequenced that whole event to give, in my opinion, these guys a reason to follow Jesus. To give him a reason to follow Jesus. But it doesn't really work. Not very well. Oh, yes. Luke, Luke also gives Peter some character or personality. Gives him more personality. Absolutely does. That's, that's, gives him, gives him a little more fleshy. Which is the one that you think is, is likely to be the, the sermons of Peter? Is it, is it Mark. It's Mark. So he marked it. Mark is just he do much that, recounting the story that Peter told, not about Peter, but what Peter said about Jesus. Yeah. That seems to be the what what Mark is doing in in a very brief way. But in this case, Mark rings more realistic, not realistic as to why they follow him. That's still a mystery. But realistic in the sequence of events that he calls them, they follow him. Essentially, they take him to Capernaum where he goes into the synagogue and he preaches and he does all these wonderful works. Then he goes to Simon Peter's house and and heals Simon's mother-in-law. And then there's more healing and there's clearly more ministry going on there for a period of time. And then he tries to get away and they don't want him to leave. And he says, we've got to go. I've got to proclaim this message elsewhere throughout Galilee. So the whole sequence makes more sense than this jumbled up event where, for whatever reason, prior to meeting Simon in Luke, he's going to Simon's house. Why? That doesn't make sense. Luke has changed the sequence for a specific reason. And that reason is, I think, to give Simon and James and John a reason to follow which makes logical sense but Marx actually works better just without the reason Um, that that also shows Luke's willingness to freely change sequence from Marx 
when he needs to. He's not willing just to play around with a few words here and there. He's willing to completely change the sequence if it fits his objective better. All right? It seems like they didn't really think they were dealing with news reporting when they were looking at their sources. You know, no. They were just stuff that was out there that they could... If Mark's gospel was arranged thematically and not chronologically, other than the overarching chronology of Jesus gets baptized, Jesus starts his ministry and whatnot to the very end. The sequence of events that occurs in Mark can be easily resequenced if you need to. It has the appearance of a chronology, but in fact it's a thematic construction. You can see the thematic construction when you plot it out. It, it, and it's plotted out a whole lot like a sermon would be, actually, which is the interesting thing. Um, Luke seemed to have no trouble resequencing it if he needs to, and he does it again. This is not the only place he does it. All right, are there any questions? Uh, it is certainly possible that with that route you described in the wilderness now that he stopped at sure. Capernaum and did some stuff and went down sure. and then went back. Sure. No, there's nothing that says that he could not have done it as it's depicted in Luke. Which would mean that Mark's order is wrong, by the way. Because it didn't happen twice. Unless you talk to really conservatives who then make this has to happen twice. I mean but it no it, well, it, it just says he it just says he, he preached, you know, yeah. or something. I they mean, don't he give the details. Before he got down there to the sea. Right. So, yeah, there's nothing that says that he couldn't have done that and, and have been in Capernaum earlier on his way back to Nazareth. There's nothing that says that that could not have happened. In fact, it, 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 that is along the seashore, that is the most logical route to take to get from the wilderness out west back home for him. You're not going to go across the water. You're going to go across, around the, the top of the, of, the, uh, of the lake. And that'll take you right through Capernaum. And that's the big town on the northern part of, of the lake. So it'd be a logical place to stop, spend the night. What this reminds me of with um, the different, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of when when uh, I was in school and you do a report mm -hmm. and you look at your textbooks, but you've got to write the report in your own words. Mm -hmm. So you change a few words here and there. Yeah, but I mean, you well, know, you do. So the you can't say that you copied it straight out of the text. Matthew and Luke both used Mark as their basic source. That is, and we've seen it enough here tonight to know that's absolutely true. And as we go through the whole thing, that's obvious. Some places they don't change a thing. Some places Matthew is really close. Luke changes everything. We've already seen that. Some places Matthew changes everything and Luke stays really close. It's interesting how they do it. But um, by, by and large, they're using Mark as their principal source. They're using Mark. and they, But their understanding of Mark was such that they had no trouble adjusting it. In other words, at this point in time, they did not consider it to be scripture as we would understand it. Um, we see that in how, how they utilize and adjust and change sequence of events and words 
They have no trouble adjusting the storyline at all. None. It's not until later that each one of these Gospels becomes identified as being Scripture and therefore too holy to change. But at this point in time, they're willing to adjust it. They consider it an authority. Oh, Luke wouldn't have used it if he didn't consider Mark an authority. Matthew wouldn't have used it if he didn't consider Mark an authority. But at the same time, Luke especially is willing to disagree with it and and adjust it. it adjust it to make it pro, flow better for a different audience. In this case, a Gentile one, which is asking, why are these guys following him? I mean, what's the purpose of that? Why are they following Jesus for no reason at all, as it is in Mark? Well, if they had known about events that were happening before, then they would be more likely. You have been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal. Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2009 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.